Christianity is for real. That's what I told a friend on Wednesday night as we were sitting in his van and talking. I'm not sure my friend is a believer, so I wanted him to know that God, God is strong enough. God is strong enough to bear every burden that weighs heavy on him. Maybe you've turned up here this morning uncertain about whether or not God is strong enough to carry your burdens, your sorrows. Maybe you've turned up here this morning and, and you doubt that God understands your suffering. Friend, I've got good news for you this morning. God... He, he understands the, the depths of the darkness that you've walked through or are even now walking through. The truth is the, the God-man, Jesus Christ, has endured the darkest darkness that this world has ever seen. Jesus is able to bear your burdens and your sorrows so you can bring them to Him in prayer. And in pain. In Psalm 88, what is perhaps the darkest psalm in the whole Psalter. In Psalm 88, we are given a picture of bringing our heaviest sorrows and pain to God in prayer. This is what we have the privilege of studying together this morning. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 88. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the psalm beginning on page 494. 494. You'll be helped, I think, to follow along as we look at this text together and wrestle with it. When you arrive at Psalm 88, one of the first things you'll notice from the ascription is that this, this is a psalm. Uh, in fact, just take a look at the ascription there. First two words, right? A psalm. A psalm of the sons of Korah. To the choir master, according to the Mahalath, Lenoth, a maskal of Haman, the Ezraite. Again, this psalm that we are about to read together is a psalm. Uh, it, it was written, it was handed over to the choir master, it was given a tune and intended to be used in the corporate worship of the ancient people of God. That's what those terms, Mahalath, Lenoth, and maskal, communicate. Just plant this reality in your mind, because we're going to come back to it. This sober, sorrowful, sad song was meant to be sung by the ancient people of God in corporate worship. This song was written by Haman the Ezraite. He was, as you can see from the inscription, a descendant of Korah. The Korahites were themselves a part of the Levites. Uh, and they were responsible for, for guarding the entrance of the, the tabernacle and temple. In short, uh, they were involved in the worship of the people of Israel. Haman's actually mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31. He's identified there as a wise man in Israel. So just put these pieces together. Psalm 88 is a song to be used in corporate worship from the pen of a wise and godly man. Read Psalm 88 now. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. 
For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in a bad one? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Can you imagine singing this in corporate worship, in public worship? It's a sad song, isn't it? You know, so many songs, they move from what one commentator said, they move from trouble to trust. This song, it's hard to see the trust, isn't it? It's, it's there, but it's really, really hard to see it. It's a sad song. And this is the reason that our service this morning has been filled with songs that have something of a solemn and mournful tune. It's important that we learn to express our emotions in godly and God-honoring ways, especially when our hearts are heavy. Haman, he was a wise man. From this psalm, we also see clearly that he was, he was a wounded man. He, he generously wrote out his troubles. He wrote them out so that, so that we might be able to take up his words and express our own troubles. This psalm honestly brings our troubles before God in a way that it avoids accusing God of evil and wrongdoing while at the same time ascribing glory to God. Have you ever wanted to honestly and honorably give God a piece of your mind? Psalm 88 can help you do that. There is something you need to know about Psalm 88. 
comes after Psalm 87. That's significant, not for a chronological reason, but because of the content within each psalm. Psalm 87, it, it speaks of the promise of restoration of the people of God who were in exile. It, it's a psalm of promise, Psalm 87 is. Israel was in exile, and they were promised that one day they would be delivered out of that difficulty and darkness. Psalm 88 gives voice to the reality that there is a delay. There's a delay between promise and fulfillment. There's a delay between the promise of deliverance and the actual deliverance itself. Deliverance from difficulty does not come right away. It comes in God's sovereign timing. So, so what do we do in the delay? What do we do in the darkness? We tell God about it. Psalm 88 teaches us how to pray in difficulty and darkness while we wait for that promised deliverance. In some respects, Psalm 88 is deliberately disorienting. And this is what it's like to live in darkness. In sorrow, like, like tears that cloud our eyes so that we cannot see sorrow and darkness descend upon us, leaving us to, to grope about for something solid so we can hold on to. See, the darkness, it, it disorients us. But let's just walk through this psalm and you'll, you'll see some of the back and forth, the unsteady, the disorienting nature of this psalm. The psalmist, he begins there with a cry in verses 1 and 2, but then he, he soon descends into confusion. One moment he's explaining his sadness, verses 3 to 5, and the next he's reminding God that he's put him there, verses 5 to the first part of verse 9. And then the psalmist, he returns back to praying in the second half of verse 9. And then there's this faint hope of a desire to praise God in verses 10 to 12. Prayer is mentioned yet again. In verse 13, but soon the author's back to expressing his helplessness and he's verbally pointing the finger at God for his pain. Verses 14 to 18. He's back and forth. He's trying, he's struggling in the darkness. There are three lessons that I want to draw out of this psalm for us. Three things that you must do in the midst of darkness. First, you must pray. And don't stop praying. Pray and don't stop praying. Second, confess and don't stop confessing. Third, argue and don't stop arguing. Haman does all three of these things in Psalm 88. Let's begin where Haman begins with prayer. This is the first point. Pray and don't stop praying. Take a look at verses 1 and 2 again. Pray and don't stop praying. O Lord, or literally, O Yahweh, Yahweh, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. The psalmist, he calls out to Yahweh. Actually, he does something stronger than that, doesn't he? He cries, cries out to Yahweh. That word cry there in verse 1 uh, can even have undertones of shouting. Right. Why does he cry out? Or when? When does he cry out to Yahweh in prayer? You see it there. Day and night. Pray throughout the day and don't stop praying. Let's remember that Jesus, Jesus' life of prayer, 
It was filled with cries. Jesus cried out to God. Uh, the sisters of our church are studying through the book of Hebrews right now. Sisters, I'm sure you remember this from the letter of Hebrews. Remember what the writer of Hebrews said of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7? There we read these tender words. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with what? With loud cries and tears. To him who is able to save him from death. Christian, remember that about Jesus. He prayed with loud cries and tears. He knew the pain of this life. And he prayed through it with loud cries and tears. And what does Haman plead as he prays? Verse 2, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. In other words, Yahweh, hear my prayer. Hear, answer, and act. The psalmist petitions God over and over throughout the day and into the night. He wants to be heard, and by that, he means that he wants God to act. Skip down to the second half of verse 9 there. What do we find there? We find the psalmist saying, Every day I call upon you. O Yahweh, I spread out my hands to you. The psalmist, he, he has been faithful in prayer. He has not only prayed throughout the day and into the night, as he said in verses 1 and 2, but he has prayed every day. Every day I call upon you. Do you pray every day? Whether you feel like you are living in darkness or living in the light of the sun, you need to pray every day, don't you? Prayer reveals our dependence upon God. Prayerlessness reveals our independence from God. When we're in darkness, we especially need to pray. We should even consider the psalmist's gestures. There at the end of verse 9, he says that he, he spreads out his hands to God. He's, he's reaching toward God, right? He's pleading with God, asking for God to deliver him. He's praying with his whole person because he's afflicted in his whole person. The, the psalmist is wrestling with God in prayer. Do you wrestle with God in prayer? In order to do that, you need to pray until you pray. In verse 13, the, the psalmist one final time declares that he is persistent in prayer. You see that verse 13, But I, O Yahweh, cry to you, in the morning my prayer comes before you. You know, some scholars have wanted to see kind of light and hope in verse 13, as if to say... You see, he's, he's made it through the night and, and morning has come. Well, frankly, that's, that's not the tone and tenor of the psalm. Uh, this psalm, as you can see from the very last word, it ends in darkness. It's not that the psalmist has made it through the dark of night and finally come around to the light of day. Rather, it's that the psalmist continues with his prayers and petitions for yet another day. You see, he is praying, and he won't stop praying. Each new morning, he keeps praying. He keeps praying for God's mercies to be new and present that morning. How long must he keep praying? He must keep praying as long as the Lord gives him life and breath. As he prays, and as we pray, we must recognize who we pray to. 
Did you notice who the psalmist appeals to in verses 1 and 9 and 13? He appeals to the covenant Lord, capital L-O-R-D. He prays to Yahweh. Whenever you see those capital letters, L-O-R-D, immediately think Yahweh. That's what's underneath those, those letters. Think Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Think Yahweh, who, the God who made a covenant to bless the nations through Abraham and to build his children into a great nation. Think Yahweh, the God who makes promises and keeps promises. This is who the psalmist is praying to. He is praying to the faithful, loving, and gracious God. And Christian, this is who you pray to. The God who keeps covenant. The God who is faithful. This psalmist, he prays to the covenant God. And the covenant God is none other than the God who, who what? There in verse 1, who saves. You see that there in verse 1? The psalmist identifies Yahweh as the God of my salvation. Do you see how personal that is? Yahweh is the God of my salvation. Do you pray personally like that? Do you claim God for yourself and as your own? Claim Yahweh as the God of your salvation. Haman knows that Yahweh is a God of salvation. He saved his people out of Egypt. He saved his people from death in the wilderness. He saved his people from defeat and the conquest. He saved Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Yahweh is the God who saves. He has done it over and over and over again. Haman knows that Yahweh is a God of salvation. And because Yahweh is the same yesterday and today and forever, Haman is certain of his salvation. Haman believes in the dark present that God will deliver him, save him at some point in the future. This is not a groundless hope. This is not a leap in the dark. It is confidence based upon God's past dealings with His people and His ever-constant, unchanging character. Haman's deliverance may come through death, but it will come. When you pray, don't stop praying to the covenant God who saves. When you pray, don't stop praying because God hears. Haman prays and he keeps on praying because he believes that God hears the prayers of his people. Why else would he pray every day and night? Verse 1. Why else would he pray every day? Verse 9. Why else would he bring his prayer to God ever new every morning? Verse 13. Why bang your head against a wall in prayer if God does not hear? We pray and don't stop praying because God does hear. God does hear the prayers of His people. Do you remember Jesus' uh, prayer of the persistent widow? His, his parable of the persistent widow? This is part of Jesus' point. Pray and keep praying because your Father hears your Christ. So just keep one finger here in Psalm 88, if you will, and turn in your Bibles to Luke 18. Turn to Luke chapter 18. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, I believe that's on page 877. 877. While you're turning there, Christian, there's something you need to recognize about our situation on this earth. Like Haman, like the saints languishing in exile, we are waiting for the final salvation of our souls. We're in that time of delay. We are waiting for the appearing of Jesus. The full and final coming of Jesus' kingdom will be swift and sudden and seen by all. It is certain. But Jesus, 
from a human perspective, has certainly been gone a long time, hasn't he? Though Jesus didn't know the date or the hour of his return, he did know that his followers would be tempted to grow weary in the time between his ascension and his return, the time we're living in now, in order to encourage his disciples to believe and keep believing, to pray and keep praying, he told the parable that we have here in the beginning of Luke 18. Read Luke 18, beginning in verse 1. Let's read to verse 8. And he told, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but after a while he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Don't you just love verses like verse 1 there? Right? Luke tells us why Jesus told the parable and what the goal was to be. Uh, that's how it was to be uh, manifested in our lives as believers. Jesus told this parable to encourage believers to pray and to keep praying. He told this parable because he knew that we would be tempted to lose heart. You know, we may think to ourselves, Jesus, how many years do I have to keep praying for healing? Jesus, how many years do I have to keep praying for the restoration of my brother and sister-in-law's marriage? Jesus, how long do I have to pray for my children to come to know the Lord, and trust Him and serve Him and follow Him? Jesus, how long will I have to battle discouragement and depression? How long do I have to pray, Jesus? How long do I have to pray for strength to battle my besetting sins? Pray and don't stop praying. The Lord is not leaving you the same through it all. The Lord is not leaving you the same through it all. He is changing you. And He's changing you for good. Prayer gives evidence of our faith because it displays that we are depending upon God to supply our need. And that's why God honors prayer. And that's why prayer honors God. Prayer reveals God to be our only hope, the only one we can trust and depend upon. Prayer gives evidence that we believe and that we haven't stopped believing. And as we turn back to Psalm 88, that's what we need to keep in mind as we continue to unpack this psalm. Again, Psalm 88 is on uh, page 494 of the Bible. Turn back to Psalm 88. Looking at this uh, petition, of, looking at the petition of Psalm 88, uh, Willem van Gemmeren perceptively observed that true faith is not apathetic acceptance. Get this, true faith is not apathetic acceptance of whatever comes to pass. Rather, true faith lies in wrestling with the Lord in prayer. That's what we see here in Psalm 88, isn't it? Christian pray 
and don't stop praying to the covenant God who saves and hears the prayers of His people. Jesus prayed and He kept praying throughout the whole course of His life. But while we were in Luke's gospel a few minutes ago, we, we could have uh, surveyed Jesus' life of prayer. And got on a quick tour of Luke's gospel, we'd find no less than seven references to Jesus himself praying. And that doesn't even count Jesus' teaching on prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer. And if Jesus needed to pray, if Jesus needed to pray, then how much more do we need to pray? We need to pray and keep on praying. We also need to confess. We need to confess our sorrows and our troubles. We need to confess the pain that we feel. And above all, we need to confess that God is in control. This is the second thing we learn from Psalm 88. Confess and don't stop confessing. Take a look at Psalm 88. Read verses 3 to 5 for now. Verses 3 to 5 of Psalm 88. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Let's be honest, this kind of confession, it's frightening. It's frightening to hear thoughts like these pop into our minds. And these thoughts have popped into our minds, haven't they? Some of us have been so downcast that we have had these thoughts in our lives. Some of us have even had these thoughts this past week. Some of us have even heard another believer confess these emotions. And it has been frightening to hear another believer speak so grimly of life. Real people of faith, real people with real faith, can speak like this. And we shouldn't despise our afflicted brothers and sisters in Christ. When the psalmist says there in verse 3 that my soul is full of troubles, he's saying he's had enough. You know when you're so full because you've eaten too much? And you can't eat another bite. That's the idea underneath that phrase. My soul is full of troubles. Haman has been stuffed. He's been overloaded with troubles. He is so full of pain that he is about to burst. And in fact, if he could burst, that, that would be a relief to him. When he declares that his life draws near to Sheol, what he's saying is that he feels like he's drawing near to death. He's drawing near to death. Sheol uh, in the Old Testament is a way of referring to kind of the realm of the dead. Poetically, Haman is saying that he's, he's nearing death. And we get that by his parallel statement there in verse 4. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. There's, there's even this kind of cadence to this portion of the psalm, isn't there? There's almost a, a rhythmic march toward death. Verse 5 even depicts the psalmist as one walking on the battlefield. Among the dead. He, he walks among the slain. The psalmist is he's, he's walking around this, this battlefield of the dead, the slain, and he, he just hasn't found his place on the ground to lie down and die. This is what he's confessing. Did you know? Did you know that sometimes the sorrows of God's people are this heavy? Did you know that if you feel this way, you can confess it to God in prayer. 
Did you know that if you feel this way, you can confess it to another believer? You don't have to remain silent. Haman confessed his troubles. Haman even wrote them down for all to see. He exposed himself like this. Do you see that here in this psalm? Haman handed them over. And they're a gift for believers to take up and express their suffering and sorrow. These words are a gift to us. Brothers and sisters, what do we do when a fellow Christian confesses to us the weight of their sorrows? What do we do when someone shares with us that, that the heaviness that they are feeling? We sit and we listen. We sit and we listen. In fact, depending upon the circumstances, that might be the only thing we should do in the moment. Maybe all you are called to do in that moment is to be with your brother or sister in Christ. You, you probably shouldn't tell a believer that they're suffering. Let me, let me revise that sentence and go back. You certainly, you certainly should not tell a believer that their suffering is just an illusion. You should be careful not to tell a believer that if they just had more faith, then the darkness would dissipate. Jesus was the most faith-filled man that ever walked this earth, and darkness followed him all the days of his life. You want to be careful not to suggest that God will answer their prayer and relieve their suffering. In God's providence, he may not choose to bring relief or make clear his response. You ought to be careful in ascribing the suffering to some particular sin. In other words, we should be careful not to say to our fellow believer, you know, you are suffering for this sin that I see in your life. While God's wrath lies heavy upon Haman, this psalm does not identify a particular sin in his life. Did you notice that as we read? Sometimes we suffer the miseries of this life simply because sin has entered into this world and God's wrath rests heavy upon the created order. This is why Haman says that God's wrath lies heavy upon him and that God is overwhelming him with all of his ways, one after another after another. Sometimes all we can do is sit and listen to another brother or sister confess their sorrow and suffering. We probably underestimate the importance of this. Do you know how important it is for another believer to know that you won't run out on them because you've confessed, because they've confessed their sorrow? You see there in verses 8 and 18, the psalmist says that his companions have shunned him. This is one of the things that sorrowful believers fear. Right? They, they already feel isolated and alone. They're, they're afraid that if they tell you just how dark the darkness is, that you'll leave them all alone. Christian, you cannot do that. You cannot leave or forsake your brother or sister in Christ. If you're a member of Arlington Baptist Church, you've given this promise to your church family. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with, endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens 
and sorrows. Happiness and heaviness. We're committed to both. If another member of this church confesses their sorrows to you, then God has called you to bear them. Sit and listen to your brother or sister confess their sorrows. Don't let them feel isolated or alone. Remind them that others have been there before. We have this witness from Haman. He has known the darkness too. You're not the only one who's gone through this darkness. You see, Satan, Satan, he actually likes to make us feel special in a really subversive way. Satan likes to isolate us by making us think that no one knows the troubles I've seen. But that's a lie. Haman has known your trouble. And more importantly, so has Jesus. That's why we read from Mark 14 earlier in the service. In Mark 14, 33, we read that in Gethsemane, Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus has known and experienced the sorrow you have endured. And he has come through it too. Confess the sorrows and confess the pain. Christian, if you are feeling the pain of your sorrow, if you feel like God has enclosed you in darkness, do not close your mouth. Keep it open in prayer. And confess your pain to another brother or sister in Christ. Do not voluntarily hold in your burden. It's not yours to carry alone. You see, God has ordained to place you in a church family that has promised to help bear them. Do not compound your sorrow by keeping it to yourself. Confess the pain. Christian, do you understand that Jesus' sorrow only increased after he walked out of the Garden of Gethsemane? He walked the lonely road to Calvary. There upon the cross, having been abandoned by all of his companions, he was finally abandoned by God the Father. Do you remember his cry? It was this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember what he was engulfed in on the cross when he made that cry? What, what happened at the sixth hour? What covered the whole land? Darkness. Here's Mark 15, 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Jesus has been derided. He's been denied. He's been deserted. And he's been covered in darkness. He was forsaken by everyone, including the Father. This supernatural darkness sets in around noon and it lifts somewhere around three in the afternoon. It was no doubt a darkness that could be felt. And when Jesus offered his cry of desolation, he confessed his pain. But there was something else that Jesus was confessing when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was confessing that God was in control. Did you notice that this is what Haman confesses in Psalm 88? Take a look at verses 6 to 9. Verse 6, 
you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Now skip down to verse 14. He keeps verbally pointing the finger at God. Verses 14 to 18. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Can you not hear these as the words of the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross? Jesus and Haman and I dare say Job all confessed that God was sovereign and in control. God ordained their suffering. And He ordained Jesus' suffering, Christian, for your salvation. God ordained their suffering. He was sovereign and in control of their suffering. God is sovereign and in control of your suffering. There is a sense in which God even brought their suffering. And here, notice that God is never accused of evil or wrongdoing. Haman never crosses that line. Haman is burdened by this suffering. He's absolutely burdened by this suffering. That is beyond doubt. Does Haman confess God? Confess that God is in control of his suffering? That too is beyond doubt. In fact, there is comfort for us in this truth that we confess. That God is in control of the midst of our suffering. There is nothing but despair if God is not in control in the midst of your suffering. If God is not in control, there is no purpose for your suffering. But if God is in control, there is purpose in your suffering. And He is in control. We confess the truth of Scripture that God is in control even in our suffering, especially in our suffering. He has a purpose in our pain. He has a divine design in our suffering. He is like a sculptor hammering away at the rock of our lives. He is chiseling into us. He's chiseling us into the likeness of His Son. And every strike and every stroke is painful. But in the end, we will be fitted and fashioned for heaven where there is no pain. No suffering or sorrow. Another purpose of God in our pain is that He may be calling us to suffer for the good of others. Have you thought about that? That God may actually be calling you to suffer for the good of others. Wasn't that what Jesus was accomplishing in His suffering? It may be God's divine design for you to suffer so that others around you may see that God really is worth everything. It may be God's divine design for others to see you suffer so that they may see how you are afflicted by God and yet still adore Him. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 11, and hear how Paul describes his affliction as, as kind of proclaiming a message, as manifesting something for the benefit of the Corinthians. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show... So you've got to show something, right? What's he going to show? To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that, here's the purpose clause, so that, why would God be doing all of this in Paul's life? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So that the suffering life of Jesus and yet fully entrusting himself to the Father... So that might be seen in our lives too. It may be God's divine design for you to suffer and receive His comfort so that you may be prepared to comfort others in their affliction. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. In the fire of our suffering, we must remember that God is in control and at work. Consider the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that, another purpose clause, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Peter uses... The phrase, now, for a little while. Did you notice how long the psalmist had been suffering in Psalm 88? It's in verse 15. Take a look at verse 15. See if you can find it in that verse. The psalmist reveals that he's been suffering from his youth up. He's been suffering a long time. He's been suffering for years and years. Some of us connect with those words. Right? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. Some of us are afraid of those words. Perhaps we're in our youth now. And we have begun to suffer. And we wonder if God will call us to suffer like Haman for years and years. These words frighten us. The truth is we may suffer our whole life and without relief. And our suffering may be classified as, to use Peter's words, a little while. That doesn't make our decades and decades or years and years of suffering on this earth easy. But it does help us to remember that our trials will have an end. We will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We know this because the pattern that Jesus has set is the pattern that we will follow. Jesus lived, he suffered, and died. Amen. He rose. He did not stay dead. He was raised from his grave with a glorified body, a body which will never feel the misery of this world again. The pattern of Jesus' life will be the pattern and path that we walk. We will suffer and we will enter into glory. Suffering will not be the entirety of our existence, though it may be the entirety of our earthly life life.
It was for Jesus. This is why we pray and don't stop praying. This is why we confess our pain and our hope in the sovereign God. And this is why we argue and don't stop arguing. This is the third and final point that we learn from Psalm 88. Argue and don't stop arguing. Read Psalm 88 verses 10 and 12. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Here, the psalmist argues for God to relieve his suffering for the sake of his glory. We're going to unpack this argument in just a minute. But right now, we need to introduce an important qualification. Arguing is not accusing. Arguing is not accusing. When we see the psalmist offering arguments for why God should not let him die, we are not seeing him accuse God of dealing unjustly with him. Those are two separate things. And as we've already observed, there's not a single accusation against God in this psalm. Nowhere in this psalm does Haman accuse God of evil or wrongdoing. And if Haman does not accuse God of evil or wrongdoing, then neither should we. It would be arrogant of us to think that we know better than this wise and godly man who suffered. This is actually something you need to be on guard against in your heart. When you suffer, you will be tempted to accuse God of doing you wrong. You will be tempted to accuse God of failing to love you, to care for you, and to provide what is best for you. You ought to recognize that God has been unjustly receiving this charge from humans from the very beginning. That He hasn't loved us or cared for us or given us what's best. Even when God, when He placed the first man and the first woman in the Garden of Eden, that perfect paradise where they had everything they should have ever wanted, they slandered God, accusing God of not giving them what was good or loving or best. He's denying us this privilege. If, if humanity has been falsely accusing God of dealing unjustly with them, even in a, a perfect environment, how much more likely are we to be tempted to accuse God of dealing unjustly with us in this difficult, dark, and disease-ridden world? Here's the truth. God has not dealt unjustly or unkindly with you for a single moment of your life. God has not dealt unjustly or unkindly with you for a single moment of your life. No matter how much you have suffered as a result of sin in this world, you have not suffered the full extent of what your sins deserve. To accuse God of dealing unjustly and unkindly with us is the height of hubris. To accuse God of dealing unjustly and unkindly with us is the apex of arrogance. What is more, we have all sinned. We have all attempted to dethrone and ungod God. We all deserve to suffer for our sin. 
We all deserve to suffer eternal damnation for our sin. And that we are not in hell this very moment is a mercy of God to us. Though we suffer, we must not accuse God of wrong in our suffering. Instead, we must argue for God to answer our prayers for the sake of His glory. That's the essence of this string of questions there in verses 10 to 12. The questions of verses 10 to 12 are perhaps best encapsulated by that one question there. Do the departed rise up to praise you? This is kind of the, the bottom line of the argument. and this, this is it. God, I can't praise you if I'm dead. So rescue me from this darkness that's leading to death. Haman's experience is really dark. And yet, what do we see here? In the darkness, he still wants to praise God. He argues, God, for the sake of your praise, for the sake of your glory, spare my life. What was it that Job said? He said in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, I will hope in him, or I will praise him. And the verse goes on, Yet I will argue my ways to his face. If you are in the darkness, you may argue your pain and suffering to God. That pulls the heart of the Father near to you, and in fact, it pulls your heart near to Him. He cares about His children and their suffering. And if you are in the darkness, you can and should argue His glory. You can say, God, I think that you will be most glorified. I think that I will be able to bring you the most glory through you lifting me out of this darkness in my life. We should argue that God would relieve our suffering for the sake of his glory. And in humility, in humility, we must hear his argument. He has one too. He has an argument to make with us. In humility, we must recognize that it may be his sovereign prerogative. It may be to his greater praise and glory that he allow the darkness to remain. It may be to his greater glory that answering that string of questions in verses 10 to 12 differently than we've argued or than Haman has argued is to his greater glory. In fact, God answered them differently than Haman argued. When Haman asked in verse 10, do you work wonders for the dead? We know what God's answer is from the New Testament. It's an unqualified, yes, I do. You don't remember Jesus' words, Lazarus, come out. When Haman asked, do the departed rise up to praise you? God's answer, yes, they will. Believers will get up from the dead, from their graves, and give eternal praise to God. When Haman asked, is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Our Father, He points us to the empty tomb. And He says, my love is declared in the grave. Because my son got up from it. This psalm, it, it ends with darkness. It's literally the last word of the psalm in English and in Hebrew. But do you see why God could not lift the darkness for Haman? He could not lift the darkness off of Haman because in order to fulfill this psalm, Jesus had to live and die in darkness for us. Jesus had to be forsaken by God so that God would never leave or forsake us. Jesus had to live and die in the worst darkness 
so that we might live in that world of eternal light. Revelation 21, verses 22 to 25. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to know that Jesus can handle your suffering and your sorrow. You can come to Him and unburden your soul to Him in prayer. But only if you believe that He has borne the dark punishment, the wrath of God the Father for your sin. Jesus has dealt with sin. He has borne the punishment for the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. He lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, and He was raised from the grave so that we might be accepted and adopted into God's family. Come to Jesus in repentance and faith. He is able to sympathize with you in your suffering and show you the way through it. As we conclude we need to revisit the encouragements this psalm, this dark psalm has for us. When we are in the midst of darkness, we need to pray and keep praying. We keep praying because our God hears. We draw near to Him because He has first drawn near to us in faithful covenant love. He is, as Haman says, the God of our salvation. He may not lift the suffering we face in this life, but the final outcome of our salvation will be freedom from sin and suffering. When we are in the midst of darkness, we need to confess and keep confessing. We must confess like Haman the pain of our suffering. We must confess for the sake of others so that they might help us in our suffering and so that we might help them. We must confess like Haman that God is in control. Our comfort is that God has His purposes in our pain. We may not see what He's producing in us through the midst of our suffering. But one day He will make plain His purpose for our pain. Finally, we must argue. Like Haman, we must set our hearts to praise God even in the midst of our suffering. He is worthy of our praise for He has dealt justly and kindly with us. He has not given us what our sins deserve. Instead, He has given us His Son. So we must argue and ask for God to be glorified in our lives. And in humility, we must be willing to live under the heaviness while still carrying the hope of heaven in our hearts. We must remember with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What we see now in our sorrow and suffering is transient. But what God is working in us 
in the midst of our suffering for our good and for His glory is eternal. So dear troubled and weary soul, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Let's pray together.